The contents of this show are for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. Any information on the show does not create a client-therapist relationship and should not be taken as professional advice. Before making any decisions regarding your health care, ask your personal physician or mental health care professional or call 911 for any emergencies. We are three friends exploring connection from the coffee shop to the podcast studio. I'm Amy. I'm Anna. I'm Erin. You guys remember how this all started? Yeah. Anna hooked us up to a tour on the House of Pod. And we went from zero to launch in less than two months. Oh, quick. Gosh. Quick. So fast. With the help of the House of Pod. Ooh. Yeah. In Denver. In Denver. Yeah. So if you want your story to be told, get hooked up with the House of Pod.com. They are so amazing. They help us with all things podcasts, all those little questions, all those big questions. From idea to production to distribution, all of the things. Yes. They Just are let them know amazing. that Less Alone sent you. Yes. Okay, we are so excited to have Maria Seal on the show today for an interview. So we were really interested in having Maria on the show because of her connection to mental health advocacy in that area and her connection to her internal drive. So here is a little bit about Maria Seal. She is a Seattle-based author, retailer, designer, and online curator who is known for her large following on Pinterest and her mental health advocacy. With a desire to empower and uplift people of all ages, she promotes a lifestyle of doing good while doing great. Through her fashion and lifestyle brand, also named Maria Seal, she gives back 7% of all proceeds to nonprofits, and we are so excited to talk to her today. So, Maria, I started following you in 2011, I think, when you were doing illustration and you had an Etsy shop and... Gosh, you were doing web design. I was just like, she is doing so many awesome things. I don't know who she is, but I need to follow her. <laughs> and then we met actually in person at a conference. It was, was it Alt Summit? Yeah, I think it was Alt Summit. Was it in Salt Lake City at the time? I think it was. I think so. Yeah. And I remember I met you and you were like giving out jewelry, like your handmade jewelry. And I was like, she is just amazing. <laughs> giving it away for free. Hustle as yeah. hard as I could. Yeah. Whoa. It's amazing. And I think I still have those. I was just like, oh, I had yeah. wanted to meet you for quite a while. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. Like you were like a celebrity. But yeah, <laughs> so it's just been so cool to like be virtual friends with you and, you know, be able to have that face, you know, getting to meet you in person in 2013 and just following you through the whole journey of like you going viral on Pinterest. Would you say you went viral or? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. And then your store and then the 52 list projects and then your vulnerability online with your mental health and therapy. Like it's just been so cool to like see. And like, I just feel like I'm always like, yes, like just cheering you on. And uh, so it's just been I'm just so glad we're getting to interview you and dive into this stuff today. So everybody, I'm so excited too. We want you to know we have Maria Seal on the line with us. So we're super (laughs) glad that you're here on the phone calling in and we're so excited for this interview. So I think, you know, with what Anna said, Maria, can you tell us a little bit about your background? And obviously, you know, our podcast is about connection and we're super interested in learning about how you connect to your customers and what connection has meant in your life and how your what your connection is to your own personal achievement and all that good stuff. All so, the questions. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. we're going to really we have 12 days. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Sorry. We have a lot of questions for you. Well, and you can come back anytime. Yeah. Installment. <laughs> yes, yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. I love coffee. I love oh, coffee, too. Oh, my goodness. And Mustache Coffee Club, you know how to do it right. It's so fresh. They roast and ship on the same day so that the person receiving their coffee will have it on peak freshness. They even have a brew after date. Isn't that crazy? It's like crazy. It's so crazy. the exact opposite of everybody else who has the expiration date. Yeah. Yes. yeah. But they need to make sure you're not drinking it 
too fresh. (laughs) (laughs) Right. They are uh, mustache kashi is specially single origin and pay above fair trade and market value. Yeah. And since it's a subscription coffee club, we get that variety. So it, you know, we don't eat the same food every day. So we don't want to drink the same coffee every day. And the best thing is you all can get $10 off your first subscription at mustachecoffeeclub.com. Just don't forget, you got to enter less alone to get the $10 off. Oh, my gosh. Are you so overwhelmed with your digital photos? Because, oh, my word, I know I... Thousands? Yeah, I used to be until I found this digital backup boot camp. It is so... It's such a total, total game changer. For your pictures? Yeah. So this lady, Miss Freddie, has a a digital backup boot camp for photos organizing. I spent a few days tackling this nagging task that has been something hanging over my head, this program was a complete game changer. That's awesome. You even found pictures of your fourth grade mullet, right? Yeah. I mean... Like I was the sending old these hard copies. <laughs> yes, I was sending these two pictures from back in the day. Like, hey, look at this. So go to tiny.cc backup bootcamp, and it's all lowercase again. Tiny.cc slash backup bootcamp, all lowercase. Get yourself hooked up. You want to get out of debt? I can help you get out of debt so fast. So get yourself hooked up with the debt free roadmap, and it will walk you through all the steps. I want to help you get to where you want to be. DebtFreeRoadMap.com. So yeah, if you want to just jump right in and tell us about you, that'd be great. Hey, where do (laughs) I start? Probably, I mean, my childhood very much, I think, has shaped me as an adult, which I think is true for most people. Mm -hmm. I had a very weird one. (laughs) Lots of positive, lots of hard stuff, everything in between. My parents are American, but we moved to England when I was two. And I lived in a rural village of 400 people. Wow. And my dad was the village priest. Oh. Yeah. Surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. What religion? Priest. He's Christian. Oh. And he's Episcopalian. Oh, Oh, okay. (gasps) You're all priest. (laughs) Well, I was thinking Catholic. But yeah. No. Yeah. Um, It's people call Episcopalianism Catholic light. Ah, (laughs) Got it. I am not religious anymore, but at the time I was. When I was younger, it's people call it Catholic light because it's the smells and the bells. There's incense, <laughs> there's robes if you want to wear one. There's beautiful iconography, but there's no purgatory. We don't oh. worship Mary as an icon. Oh. And it's priests can be married. Yeah, I guess. I've, right. Um, Interesting. Yeah. They definitely are more liberal leaning um, in politics and social sphere. Hmm. So, yeah, it's different. Huh. So my dad is both an Episcopalian priest in, in England. It's the Anglican Church. Okay. And then he also is a high-level practicing Buddhist. Oh, wow. That's super interesting combination. Yes. Yeah. yeah. When he went to seminary school in Berkeley, his seminary was across the street from a Buddhist monastery, so he would like kind of go back and forth between the two. Oh, wow. That is so interesting. Does he still do both? Now he's retired. Oh, okay. But both are really core to his spiritual practices. He also has a photographic memory, so he can read like five books at a time, and he used to be a world history teacher. So he's he's just always learning, and always absorbing more information. One of my sisters um, converted to Judaism, and my we have a lot of family uh, who are Jewish, so my dad also knows so much about Judaism, can read Hebrew. Oh my gosh. We have Muslim cousins, so he knows a lot about being Muslim. So I just had a very eclectic growing up when it came to like seeing different influences in the world within my family, within my dad's perspective. Yeah. Also living in a rural area in a foreign country that also spoke English. (laughs) And we we moved to US when I was eight. Wow. Can I interrupt for one second? What was the was there space for you to figure out where you fit spiritually or religious? Was there space for that or you were pushed in a direction or Yes and no. I would say both. Okay. (laughs) And both is really like a good word for most of my life. Okay. Like, I have always felt like there are plenty of people who have tried to box me into either or, Mm -hmm. and me as a person, I don't exist in either or. I Mm. exist in all. Yeah. Mm. 
And so growing up, I went to Catholic school in the U.S., which is very confusing when your dad's an Episcopalian. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Confusing for other people to palate. Oh, yeah, sure. I had plenty of adults tell me, oh, you're the pastor's kid. Are you the good one or the bad one? <laughs> Are you the devil child or the angel child? And what would you I say? Would have, I would say I'm neither. I'm extremely moderate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the middle. So that was really like my rebellion as a young person was instead of trying to fit into into what someone told me I need to be versus the opposite of what they needed me to be, I wanted to try and find like my middle ground. Mm-hmm. And I think having a dad who valued multiple religions was helpful for that. Mm-hmm. Though there were times when my parents would say they would have extremely rigid, strict rules for who I needed to be and how I needed to grow up. Like when I was younger, my parents, very confusing beliefs. My great uncle was gay, so my, they were very okay with men being gay. But they thought, oh, if a woman is gay, it must be daddy issues. Hmm. They had these very blanket statements that maybe uh, were validated culturally in the early 90s and the late 80s. But now, no. <laughs> right. yeah. thankfully, now I identify as queer took me a long time to understand that, but they have embraced that. And my youngest sister is also queer too. So Uh yeah, my upbringing was a lot of strange, harsh differences between cultures from moving to England to the U.S. Yeah. And when did you move to the U.S.? Eight. When I was eight. Oh, eight. Okay. Yeah. And my, that really only happened because um, in England, priests are paid like $30,000 a year. And for a family of four, Mm. we were, we just... We couldn't survive off of that. Mm-hmm. And my mom couldn't work at the time. So we moved to the U.S. very suddenly, and I had crazy mm. culture shock. I yeah, bet. especially rural. Where did you move to in the U.S.? I moved to Northern California, a little town called Nevada City, which is about an hour between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe. Okay. It looks like Lake Tahoe and has that Lake Tahoe vibe. Beautiful. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And how long did you live there? Um, I lived there until I was 18. And then I had a very dramatic and difficult, challenging transition to college. Mm. Oh, yeah. Challenging in which ways? My dad had always dreamed that I would, I mean, okay, so this is a weird thing about my upbringing, too, is in England, my dad being a priest meant that he could really float between the classes. In England, there's a, it's a lot more like classist society. Mm -hmm. unfortunately, Mm -hmm. or at least blatantly versus the U.S. There's a lot of classism, but we we pretend it's not there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in England, my dad kind of looked around at the different uh, luxuries that different people had of different classes. And my dad was like, "Okay, I want my daughter to have as many opportunities as she can. And to him, that he that meant, oh, she should marry a rich man. And he'll take care of her. Mm. Whereas I, from a young age, was like crazy driven Mm -hmm. and crazy determined to do things myself. (laughs) My first sentence was, me help me. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That is my personality. Oh my gosh. And my husband teased me about it. (laughs) Yeah. So my dad's dream was to have me go to like debutante balls in England and to be married off to a nice wealthy man who lives in a state house in the countryside. And For me, that was not what I wanted at all. So when I went from this like super interesting, strange childhood in England that was very romantic in a lot of ways for me, we lived at the end of a dead end street and there were uh, fields all the way around my house and I could go play in the field and dig up ancient pottery. Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow. And I would make like fairy villages out of these pieces of ancient pottery. I had like a really beautiful idyllic romantic childhood when I visualize myself alone, mm. but so scared of people. Mm. <laughs> I had a few close friends, but I was, you know, your most extreme introvert sensitive child. So when we moved to the U.S., it was like a sudden extreme culture change of mm. rural England fairy tale life. My dad wanting to be like me to be like Cinderella or something mm-hmm. <laughs> to Northern California kids smoking weed in the bathroom in third grade Mm -hmm. at school and it's really hilly it's not flat like england Mm -hmm. there's pine needles i hate pine needles (laughs) (laughs) like so many weird 
specific things I was just like, I don't, I know where the hell am I? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, my childhood very much shaped the weird, weird person that I am. Uh, (laughs) Very strange. When I moved to the U S I have a lot of trauma that happened in my early childhood. Um, a girl who I knew in England died eight days after I moved to the U S Mm. The girl who sat next to me in my class, in my third grade class at Catholic school, drowned in a hot tub. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. Um, and then six months after that, my best friend's older sister was hit by a car and killed. Oh, my gosh. And six months after that, my adoptive grandmother uh, passed away. I just had a lot of death very suddenly early on in my early life. Wow. And being a priest's daughter as well, it's you know, though I was kind of reserved and quiet, I still was very involved in a community. So I've probably been to at, at least 50 to 75 funerals. Wow. Um, oh my gosh. I've seen crazy stuff. I've seen dead bodies. I've seen the different ways that people want to process death and mourning. I've been to tons of different types of like ceremonies. I just have a very... I I kind of feel like I have like this strangely old world experience of growing up. Yeah, it sounds so like that. Culturally than than most people who are 33. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Have you been back to England? Yes, we went back. The first time I went back, I moved to the US when I was in third grade. And then uh, my grandparents, who are American, I just have, I can talk more about my weird tiny family, but my grandparents knew how hard it was for me moving to the U.S. So they took me back for two weeks when I was in sixth grade. And it was really, it was like a really beautiful and important thing that I think that I got to do and that they gave me that opportunity to do to see how life changes once Mm. you're away. Mm -hmm. Um, But, and I really accepted that, but I also when we were flying back to the U S I started just, I just was bawling crying because I just felt like, okay, I'm leaving home again. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Not, like, yes, my family is in America, but I'm leaving home. Mm-hmm. Were you in this insightful as a kid? Yes. You were. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I, I was hyper. I mean, I definitely think I am my parents' child when it comes to like being hyper analytical, very, very self-aware, mm-hmm. but also kind of naive at the same time when I was young my, I mean, I had, when I was six or seven, I remember watching something on TV. Our TV had like five push buttons and like two or three of them worked for channels. Um, and I remember watching something about this girl in Russia who was a famous painter. She was like five. Mm -hmm. She was selling her paintings for a million dollars because they were so incredible. And I remember being six or seven and looking at that and being like, get it together. <laughs> right. You are, you need to catch up. One year ahead of you, like you should be working harder. Wow. You could be doing something powerful, but you're just hanging out playing with Barbies. Right. Was, together. Was that connected to your move back to the US? Like did was that part of the way you coped? No, that was no. that was, was that's how you just were. Okay. All right. Yeah. And yeah. I think yeah, I don't know if that's that's something I really never have figured out if like that's just I mean my first sentence was me help me so right this is just like my personality right yeah. right right hyper introspective and hyper self-improvement focused but I also you know I I grew up in a family where um, I was very isolated as well um living in rural England mm-hmm. my mom's side of the family both her parents died when she was in high school and she was an only child oh her grandfather committed suicide and she heard on the radio. Oh, um, wow. Her family is very ethnically diverse, but, you know, she's in my research of our family. I see how the traumas of our ancestors and her lineage have really cultivated the person that she is now. Sure. But yeah, growing up, I basically only had one side of a family. So living in England, we were really isolated in that little tiny village. And I spent most of my time like playing in our garden. And observing my mom. My mm. dad was usually working. So I think, you know, my mom is also an extremely intelligent person. She has a genius level IQ, but socially she can be challenged. Mm. So I grew up kind of around that in observing in quiet spaces, observing 
my mom, observing my dad, observing my neighbors. And then I have two little sisters in England. My middle sister was born. And then in the U.S., my youngest sister was born. So I just was very observational. Hmm. I'm an INFP, but at the time, Uh, I was an an INTJ until I was in college. I uh, listening to you, I'm like, oh my gosh, I I feel like so similar to you. I'm also (laughs) like, yeah, like I, when I've taken the test, I always come back as an INFP, but I think I'm actually an ISFP. But anyway, just like being reserved to like and then the drive and like as like a kid. And oh, my gosh, I am just like, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize it's really good to hear your story. It's super cool. Um, There's more humans out there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Right. I recognize that's how I feel about that's really what blogging taught me. And, you know, meeting someone like you and all the different other women that I met through blogging Mm -hmm. was like the first time that I felt like, oh, my God, I'm not. Oh, totally alone. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Like I just felt like such a freak most yeah. of my life. Hmm. And I didn't want to feel bad about that. Mm-hmm. I just felt like I just don't fit in. Mm-hmm. in. In high school, I would just cry to my dad all the time and be like, I don't fit in and I can't make myself fit in. Mm-hmm. I just like I can only be myself. That feels like the only right thing to do for me, but I just don't fit in and I don't feel accepted. I feel odd. I feel weird. I'm confused. But now as an adult, I can look back on that and realize, though I didn't, I feel like every year when it comes to accepting and understanding myself, every year has gotten better. Mm, That's awesome. And it sounds like you really work at it. Like it's not like it just comes naturally. (laughs) We appreciate that. Yeah, Yeah. We're all about the therapy here. (laughs) Yes. So did you start blogging in high school or did you, I know you mentioned at 18, it was like a really hard transition. When did you start blogging and really feel like that was helping you to connect? It's kind of, I did a lot of different, I was very, hmm, where do I even start? I mean, I've always been a writer. Uh I started writing music when I was 15 and taught myself guitar. Okay. I have always been, or at least when I was younger, I was a big journaler and my journals, I think I, my parents, I think there's actually a package waiting for me in our storage room because mm-hmm. my parents sent me a stack of papers of just my writing. Oh. I just had a lot of feelings and I would just write <laughs> stuff out. Yeah. So it really started with that when I was younger of just expression through writing. Mm-hmm. That's so healthy to like process it, like yeah. get it out of your head. Good. Yep. But then in high school, I became like an obsessive like MSN messenger chat mm-hmm. <laughs> with my few friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I discovered Live Journal. Okay. And I was I was very emo. I had my exes on my hand, that swap, and uh-huh. I was straight edge. Like being emo in high school for me was like the best cover up for being Christian. Uh-huh. I felt very alternative as a person. I was very progressive, but I was Christian. Mm. So being emo was like, this is like perfect <laughs> because <laughs> you can be straight edge and you're not, you're not mm. supposed to drink and that's cool versus in Christianity, you're not supposed to drink and that's not cool. Yeah. Right? Uh. So yes, I felt safe in that little space, but I did live journal. I did Zanga. Have you heard of Zanga? Oh gosh. I don't know. that. I don't yeah. know. That's a deep cut, guys. That's a (laughs) blogging platform from a long time ago. I was on Zanga Live Journal. I think I was on Live Journal when I was like 16. Zanga, probably like around 14. Oh, wow. Okay. I was on Friendster before there was MySpace. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then I was on MySpace. And then I was on Facebook. And then I was on blogging. So I've just always been like very quick to try and jump on whatever new opportunity there is for me to express myself. Like an uh, early through, adopter? Through art. Yeah, like a childhood early adapter. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were in high school, were you also reserved or did you start to come out of yeah. that? Oh, okay. And then so... I was very reserved, but I also still had this like drive in me of like when... <laughs> I experienced a lot of bullying throughout my life. Mm being a reserved person, it's like you easily absorb that and Mm. you are an easy target for that. But at the same time, I still had this drive in me that when people 
you know, I'd cry all the time. I was super depressed. I had anxiety. Mm. I had a lot of trauma. I had PTSD um, that was undiagnosed. Mm. But I still at the same time was like, I'm going to prove you wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm. You can all shame me, hate me, or say I'm not going to grow up to be anything or that I'm making bad choices or that I shouldn't trust myself or that Mm. there's just, I mean, especially within Christianity, at least now I'm not Christian. I realize like so much of my Christian cultural narrative was a lot of gaslighting. Mm. So a lot of just teaching me to not trust myself. Mm. Well, at the same time, intuitively, I was like, I I just just feel like I should trust myself. Mm -hmm. Mm. But I'm being told I should not. Mm-hmm. And I'm being told that I'm evil and I'm being told that I'm bad and that I'm sinful and I deserve to not be alive. Mm, right. But I feel like I should be, question mark. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, so probably... What was that? Can I interrupt you real quick? What was that yeah. like Like what for in terms of trusting yourself? like? So it sounds like in order to do what you've done, I imagine that... You need a lot of self-trust for that. And so what has been, since that was hard and that you were getting messages from your religion, how have you built that in? Or like, how have you cultivated self-trust within yourself? Yeah, I think it really started for me with wanting to, when I was young, I did not want to be alive. Mm-hmm. I looked at my religion and I and I would, my dad wouldn't ever make me read the Bible on my own, but I would just like flip through it at random and like hit, like, what am I going to learn today? And I just... <laughs> flip to a verse. I remember being like eight or nine and reading, you are a slave to sin, but through God, you are set free. And I remember thinking like, wow, I'm inherently a slave to sin Hmm. and I am inherently bad. Hmm. I'm inherently self-centered garbage piece of ish. I am, I don't like, I don't even deserve to be loved. I don't deserve God's love, but I owe him because Jesus died for my sins. And so like, I must turn all of my value to my religion. Hmm. And even as you're saying that now, like, I feel like if you're experiencing that as a kid, like it, I can viscerally feel that in my body, like, oh, yeah. and so that yeah. is a, uh, those are powerful things to be uh, taught. Yeah. Yeah. It's super intense for a little kid just yeah. to read the Bible and then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stumble upon that doozy. Yeah. Jeez. Oh my God. Right. Yeah. Oh. I also like I there were kind of like three verses that really like I basically meditated on as a kid. And unfortunately that was one of them as I was I'm a slave to sin, but through Christ mm. I'm so free. Um another one was um somewhere in the old testament it talks about how the sins of a person affect their future generations for three to four generations. Hmm. And I remember reading that and being like, wow, like that is, that explains my mom. Yeah. And ancestral trauma stuff is real. Yeah. Yeah. And I was a kid when I read that and I really was like, okay, like my mom, parents were chain smoking, alcoholic, abusive, physically, emotionally, their parents, one of them committed suicide. Another one was half black, but couldn't tell anybody. There, people before them, it was like, I, I just have such a crazy lineage on outside of the family of so much trauma that as a little kid, I could see that trauma in my mom. I could see my mom crying in the kitchen. I could, my mom would collapse sometimes and I would go rush to help her. And I, and I would realize like, this is what the Bible is talking about. I think, mm. I think it's talking about the sins of generations then hurt and impact the generations to come. So literally I was like a seven or eight year old. I was like, this is my mission. This is, I'm the only one who can stop this. Mm. I'm the only one who can end this pattern of at the time what I called sin, but now as an adult, I'm like, Oh, this is trauma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm grateful that I read that in the Bible and was able to interpret it as what I see it is now. And you were eight. When they were, yeah. when, <laughs> get wow. a high five, girl. Yeah. That is pretty amazing. Yeah. It was intense for a little yeah. person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I also had, I mean, I think what really helped me stick, kind of stick with that intention of living or purpose was the fact that I had two little sisters. I was the oldest 
and I was alone with my sisters a lot. And I, I needed, I needed a lot of care that I, I didn't really, you know, my parents did their best, but I needed more care than I got. And so I looked to my sisters as four years younger and nine years younger. And I was Mm. like, okay, I, I'm going to change stuff. I Mm. didn't get certain types of care, but I can give this to my sisters and I'm going to help heal them. I'm going to help protect them. So that way I can end this generational curse of sorts. Mm. Do you ever talk about that now as adults or is that? Yep. Yeah. Yep. We talk about it all the time. My sisters both have children now Mm -hmm. and you know, even in high school, I'd, I'd tell them like, I feel like I'm your other mom. Like mm-hmm. I'm your other mom. And they'd be like, yeah, you are. You are mm-hmm. our other mom. Mm-hmm. You also helped raise us. You protected us. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents would ask me for advice on parenting all the time. Oh, wow. Mm. And now I look back and I'm like, oh, that's sad. Like, that's really sad that like, that, you know, I wielded so much power within my family in a lot of ways. Sure. To me, that shows like the suffering of my parents. Mm-hmm. But I also, you know, my my dad will tell me even to this day, he's like, Marie, you're literally the only person who can hurt me. You, you, oh, wow. You just have a lot of like something in you. And it is, it's just something that I take really seriously. And I, and I haven't found anybody else other than my mom. Hmm. Um, that's a lot for a young person to hold. But, yeah. um, I just kind of view that as like, okay, if I do hold power somehow, then I need to use it for good. So holding all that, that power, like all that heavy stuff, like how I imagine like a, you might've had to do like a journey into self-love, like through all the work that you talked about. And so what, how has like, where is that now? Like, how has that pain? So you had all that pain and all those intense things happen that I imagine has shaped a lot of where you are now. And so where is that? How is like the journey into self-love or like, to self, whatever that you want to call that. But what does that look like? Where are you with that now? Yeah, I think blogging is really when it started for me. Mm -hmm. In college, there's a point where I just basically decided like, okay, if I'm alive, I need to be pursuing a better belief in myself, a better hope for myself, a better trust in myself. Because I wanted, I really wanted to not be alive when I was 18 Mm. because of my family having a lot of people be suicidal in it, I was like, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna do that because I know how it feels to love and to observe someone who is having a hard time staying alive. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to have anybody I love uh, experience that sort of pain. But I also don't think that people who are suicidal are doing that on purpose to mm-hmm. people. Right. I just really didn't want to hurt anybody because of my own hurting. Mm. So really, when I think that like self love journey, quote unquote, started for me was in blogging after college. Mm. Because I always, you know, I have had some incredible friends over my lifetime. But I always felt like they accepted me in spite of the stuff that I was. Mm. I felt constant just shame for who I was. And I felt like most of my friends growing up accepted me in spite of it. And that's still, that's more of my own, my own sorting out as a young person, probably they did just love me for me. But Mm -hmm. as a young person with a Christian, harsh Christian narrative, I thought, oh, they like me in spite of me. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So it was a general, like just this love and acceptance from friends that helped you see it in yourself? I think it was really blogging. Uh, When I uh, graduated and there were no jobs, mm -hmm. I had a degree in illustration was like, oh, God, Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, I just had to output. Really, mm-hmm. I am. I'm someone who can't memorize very well mm-hmm. at all. But I have a lot of ideas that I want to put out into the world. Mm-hmm. So um, I think blogging became like the space for me to just output, mm-hmm. to force myself to make art, to do illustration, to paint, to draw, to sing, to write music, um, to just write free thought. Mm-hmm. Talk about fashion. It just gave me this space to be like, okay, I am, I felt safe within blogging. Mm-hmm. I felt like there's no one physically around me to critique me. Yeah. Yeah. But in this digital world, I can create and I can invest in the Maria that I want to be. Mm-hmm. And that was also kind of like a privilege of the economic crash of 2008 is mm-hmm. I, I had no job. I was having to start um, paying my college loans back in six months. So mm-hmm. that six month period between graduating and 
starting to pay back loans, I just was like, I've got to, I've just got to output myself mm-hmm. somewhere. Hustling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just got to hustle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah. You have that drive to succeed and just that internal drive. It's something that's yeah. like evident over the years. It's just like you're succeeding, you're doing, it's you're creating, it's really evident at seeing you. Thank you. And you've achieved a lot. And yeah. I'm I'm wondering about your like your relationships to success. And so what is that like? Ooh, like yeah. are you are you <laughs> able to experience like lean into the joy of that or to celebrate Ooh, what you've achieved? Challenge. Yeah. It is a challenge. <laughs> yeah. I think what probably makes me different than a lot of people who view success as accomplishment, for me, I'm like, this is just survival. Mm. Like (laughs) blogging was survival. Like me expressing myself is survival. Mm. It's not like, you know, I have that internal debate all the time of like, is this just ego? Mm. Am I just like so self-absorbed that I'm having to put out all this, like just do all these things? Mm. Is it a coping mechanism? Is it trying to prove to myself that I'm, I have meaning? Is it, you know, I just go on those philosophical quandaries within my own mind all the time and always have since I was little. But I think really what it comes down to is survival for me. Um, Mm. I just think about a lot of my childhood was just survival mode. And that's where art really came into play for me as a child, art and music. And even today, you know, running a small business is no joke. Mm -hmm. No joke. I've had a lot of successes and I've had a lot of Uh, things that I think people from the outside would say like, that's incredible luck. And I would say, yes, it was incredible luck. And great things don't happen unless you combine luck with hard work. Yeah. Hard, Mm -hmm. hard, hard work and sacrifice and being willing to take on challenges. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard for me to kind of look at my successes from the outside that I know people do when people come up to me and they're like, your life just seems so fun. And I'm like, I, well, yeah, for sure. There are a lot of fun things, but also, damn, it's hard work. Yeah. Well, yeah, you wrote four books in two and a half years we read. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's crazy. Amazing. That is. So yep. the 52 list project, that is something that I remember you were writing about it on your blog, I think. And then is that how it started? Can you kind of take us back to how it started? And yeah. 2012 to 2013 was a very strange year for me. I, by 2012, I had an Etsy shop. I was doing blog design. I was doing coding. I was writing music. I was in a band. Hmm. I was doing fashion blogging. I was nannying like 60 hours a week. Um, wow. Just a couple I things. I was an art <laughs> assistant to a sculptor, uh, getting paid like $8 an hour. I was doing like literally anything at all that I could do to try and figure out like, where is my life going? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm just going to try a bunch of stuff. (laughs) I think that's like one quality that I now as an adult realize like, oh, I think because of a lot of like trauma and really hard challenges that were outside of my control, I learned early on that like, who cares about failure? Mm. Like bad stuff's just going to happen all the time. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that I can do is stay motivated and push to create positive stuff because negative stuff's going to happen, positive stuff's going to happen to you, but you are the only one who determines what you manifest in your life, if you will. I don't really mm-hmm. use that word like manifest. It feels a little too out of your control in a way. Mm. I really believe that like people are resilient. And yes. it's through your experiences that you realize like, oh, I can fail and I can get up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think I've I've been willing to do for most of my life is mm-hmm. I'm willing to take really big risks and fail and also try again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super evident, like you're willing to try and to put yourself out there. It's it's so pretty cool. What else happened in 2012 to 2013? So you were trying all these things and trying all these different things. um, And I was getting very overwhelmed and (laughs) I was realizing, okay, I have the capacity to do a lot of things, but I'm going to go crazy and I'm going to start to hate a lot of these things if I try and do them all at the same time. So that was my first time in realizing like my value does not come from the stuff that I do. Mm. Mm. It took me probably until like three years ago to realize like my value is inherent to me Mm. no matter if I succeed or not at anything. 
at that, all. That's huge. That's a Let's big one. Just <laughs> good. That was wow. take that a pause. A long time to realize. Yes. But most of my life, it was like, okay, I'm just coping. I'm coping. I need to prove to myself that I am valuable. What are the things I can do? Mm-hmm. So in 2012, that was around the time uh, Pinterest was blowing up. I started using Pinterest when it was in beta mode and hmm. used it as like collections to create inspiration boards for my design clients. Mm-hmm. And then I realized like, oh, this is like shopping <laughs> and I'm getting to keep stuff, but I don't actually keep it and I don't pay for anything. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I can afford. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to play on Pinterest a lot. <laughs> And then I accidentally amassed a very large following on there. It was like the one space that I wasn't trying to like really push myself out there. It was just like my play space. Oh, a interesting. A thousand followers on my blog. I had a couple thousand followers on Twitter. And I had a sponsor at the time, like a shoe sponsor who would send me a free pair of shoes once a month to talk about. They're like, what are your stats on all your sites? And they said a thousand here, a thousand there, a couple thousand there. And I went to Pinterest and it said 250,000. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's a glitch. I should probably have around like 2,500. So I emailed um, Pinterest and they're like, no, you do have 250,000. You are one of our five most followed people on Pinterest. Wow. And that's organic and that's real. And I was like, what? I know. What? <laughs> I've been working so hard at so many things and crying over not being able to afford a cup of coffee and eating spaghetti every day. Yeah. And this one random thing that I barely pay attention to just blew up. <laughs> and I didn't even notice. That's so interesting. Mm. Especially because it was like you you thought of it as your play space. Yeah. Yeah. For me, that was like, oh, I can just totally be myself here. Yeah. Wow. Barf myself onto the internet. And <laughs> it's great. It's fun. No one's judging me. What was kind of funny about it, too, was that my dream career as a tween was to be a museum curator. I wanted oh. to own a museum and I wanted to curate fine art. <laughs> Very precocious young person. Yeah. <laughs> and when I went to college, I realized I can't memorize and that career is never going to happen for me. <laughs> so... Pinterest became this like, oh my God, I get to, I get to do something that like is connects to a career dream that I had when I was younger, but yeah. in like a totally weird, different way. So in 2013, I was like one of the first people on Pinterest to have an agent for Pinterest. Oh, wow. wow. What does that even mean? I was approached. Someone found me through Pinterest and there's just like for blogging, just like for Instagram, just uh-huh. like for Pinterest now, there are agencies who rep influencers. So I was like a very early on influencer when they were still trying to figure out the name for it. They called us like tastemakers or curators or... Huh. They're like, we don't know what to call you. So then I guess they landed on influencers. Yeah. <laughs> so at the time I did huge campaigns for like a, pretty much any giant brand you can think of. I probably did a campaign for them from Nordstrom, J. Crew, Madewell, L'Oreal. Okay. Hundreds, probably hundreds of different people I did campaigns with. And were you at that point getting like financially comfortable from just those campaigns that you could like let go a lot of that other stuff you were trying? Or what did you? Yes and no, because being an influencer was never my goal or my dream. So uh-huh. I didn't really view any money that I got from that as like income. Mm. I viewed it as money that would fuel the actual dreams that I have. Mm-hmm. So that's when I really started reinvesting in my Etsy business, which I started with like $10. Mm-hmm. I have no experience in business. And I always thought I'm terrible with money. My family always teases me about that. I'm terrible with money. If it's in my pocket, I'm going to spend it. Mm. I didn't ever... It's like I didn't realize that I was becoming an entrepreneur or a business person until like two or three years into it. (laughs) Interesting. I just was like, well, I need to survive and I want to do the things that I love. So Mm -hmm. whatever way I'm making money, it should go back into the thing that I want to be doing. Mm -hmm. So influencing was just kind of like a, I just viewed it as like, I don't know how long this is going to last. I don't know. You know, now we know like being an influencer is like so huge in um, marketing now. But at the right. time, I was like, I don't know if this is going to die out. So I really don't want to invest <laughs> yeah. in this very much because yeah. I don't really care. <laughs> yes. 
So then did you start your storefront? Like at what point did you start your storefront and MariaSeal.com? Yeah, in 2013. Oh, okay. So by 2012, I guess I must have had an agent for like a year or so by 2012 because I was already really sick of it and it just felt really false and really mm-hmm. fake and really... You know, I was doing campaigns only with companies that I genuinely liked, but they'd still really, my agency would really push me to work with brands I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like this is not what I wanted with my life. From a Mm -hmm. young age, I wanted to be my own boss. And instead, I'm letting people tell me what I should talk about. And I don't, Mm -hmm. that's not me. Mm -hmm. I've never been that way. So I decided to partner with my cousin, Reed, who also is kind of like a self-made person. He emancipated from his family when he was like 18. Whoa. Like officially? I don't know if he officially ever did. Um, He's still connected to his family, but he just kind of like went out on his own at 18 and just started hustling and went through. (laughs) Have you ever seen the movie Freedom Writers? Yeah. I don't think I have. So that is based on my business partner slash cousin's class. Oh, in L.A. So oh. he like, oh if you've seen that movie, you will like he has experienced harsh stuff. Yeah. Gang violence as a tween. And wow, just a crazy growing up a life as well. So serious badasses in your family. I know. <laughs> yeah, we're hustling hard. We're yeah. we're just trying to in- <laughs> look trauma in the face and say, you don't own me. And we're going to do bigger stuff and try and help people along the way. That is so awesome. That is so motivating. Yep. So, okay. So then you're, yeah. So then the online. Yeah. We started the online site in 2013 because I was like, I, I don't want to be an influencer. (laughs) (laughs) Professionally, I really don't. This is not like, it doesn't feel totally authentic. Mm -hmm. So uh, we decided to open the online site because I thought, okay, I have, almost a million, million followers at that point um, on Pinterest. I have people who want to work with me. I have giant brands that are watching me. Why don't I just do this myself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If big brands are wanting to work with influencers, it's probably because they see they see their power, they see their influence, mm-hmm. and they could be a competitor mm-hmm. or they could be someone you absorb. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you're not going to absorb me. I'm going to try and compete with you. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. Oh, that's You're great. A little bold and dumb. <laughs> I <but> love it. <laughs> I'd rather just try. Yeah. yeah. Right. You're not afraid of failure. <laughs> nope. No. Nope. So we started the online site in 2013 and then we opened the storefront almost six months later, only because it wasn't like an online retail site was never my dream. A storefront was actually never my dream. Uh, writing a book was never my dream. I just have been open to seeing where opportunities will lead and just pursuing the shit out of them. (laughs) Yes. So what is your dream? What is my dream? Hmm. You know, my dreams have changed a lot over the years. I would say for a lot of my life, my dream was to live without anxiety. Mm. That was it. I just want to live not in fear. I want to live not making decisions based out of fear. Mm. My first therapist that I finally went to when I was in college, I had just found out that my family was like a lot of quieted things about my family when it came to ethnicity within our lineage. And I realized how diverse my family was. I'm a lot of different things, um, not just the silly ways of doing like genetic testing, but like actually I know the stories of my family and I know what was hidden. Mm -hmm. That was really hard for me to absorb to feel like me as a, a obviously very white person. My white skin has masked all of the stories of the people who are more diverse in my family. I felt extreme guilt about who I am, how I looked, and how it covers up the stories of my family. Mm. I felt like a, a perpetrator. I just felt terrible. Mm. Mm. I also had one of my best friends in college died suddenly around that same time. And so that was when I finally went to therapy. And one of the greatest things someone has ever told me in my whole life was this very intense, scary therapist. (laughs) She was like, she was so tough, but I really respected that. She stopped me one day and was like, Maria, I hear you saying everything that you don't want to be. And I don't hear you saying anything that you do want to be. Mm. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) 
21 and I, I'm realizing in this moment that all of who I am has been defined in opposition to things. Mm-hmm. Even within Christianity, when adults would tell me, are you the good child or the bad child? I, I was put on the defense. I mm. had to be like, I am not that one and I am not that one. So I am this one. Mm-hmm. I was just always on that defense and living in opposition of things. And that's a normal thing when you grow up around a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. Right. I see that in culture today with politics. Like here in Seattle, there are these groups called the Proud Boys and there are fascist groups growing in Seattle. Mm. And so there's other groups trying to grow in opposition to it called like the what's it called? Anti-fascist. There's an anti-fascist group that is kind of growing in opposition to them. And though I'm a very progressive liberal person and want to very much stand up and fight for uh, people's rights, I also think like narrative is so important in shaping how we talk about how we talk about it mm-hmm. in our internal selves and externally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To oppose a fascist group doesn't mean that you are anti-fascist. I think it means that you need to define yourself by your beliefs, not mm-hmm. by being the opposite of someone else's beliefs. Yeah, and having that space, I feel like, in today's culture to allow people to have, rather than just the reaction or the opposition, would be a huge benefit to yeah. our entire society. So I think that it can happen and it happens with shifting narrative. And that's really what my books are, are to me is yeah. that my books are like, are my secret personal protest in trying to help people heal in the ways that I've had opportunities to heal. I recognize the privileges that I have of getting to even go to a therapist. Mm-hmm. Right. Most people can't afford that. And so I want to try and create books that are going to give people accessibility to switching the narrative of their life so that they can live the life that they actually want. That is so awesome. Can you tell us the titles of those books? And then, I mean, I know, I know we all know them, but more for our audience so that, (laughs) so that they can, you know, look them up and then get the help that you've had and hopefully, you know, really find how to love themselves and become their true authentic selves. Yeah. Yeah, the first book is The 52 List Project. And that is, like Anna was saying, that was something that I started on my blog. And that really was like the start of my self-love journey, if you will, mm-hmm. self-care journey, <laughs> was realizing that like I wrote The 52 List Project on my blog and then in a book form, not just to help people, but also to help myself. I needed to have like evidence of who I am. I needed to look on paper and say, here I am. Like when I, when I lose myself, when I feel lost, when I feel depressed, when I feel anxious, when I feel worried, I need a reference point to remember like, oh, I'm here. Like I'm, Mm. there's evidence of me and I have created this and Mm -hmm. I'm okay. That's what I really wanted to do with the 52 list project. And I think that's why it kind of went viral on Pinterest as like a, a digital thing is that I was just, I was making these lists, like lists of things you're grateful for or lists of difficult things that have uh, shaped you for the better. Mm-hmm. I was trying to reframe my narrative. And I think people connected with that because they wanted to do the same for themselves. Definitely. So a publisher found me and they wanted to turn it into a book. And I thought, yeah, we'll, we'll see if that actually <laughs> can happen. And the first day that the book came out, they only printed 5,000 copies. But the day it came out, it was picked up by Barnes & Noble, Anthropology, Urban Outfitters, Paper Source. Wow, that's so, so exciting. And that's so great just to think about. Stores. Yeah. Yeah. Think about like the reach that yeah. you've had on individuals to shift their own narrative yeah. and really get to know themselves. I'll be out yeah. like on vacation and stuff and I'll see your book in little boutique shops. And I'm oh, like, oh, Maria. that's so awesome. <laughs> oh, it's so cool to see. So then what what came next? So um, it was the storefront. At the same time as the storefront, when I was working six days a week as a sales associate, I was writing my book. Oh, wow. And then the books just took off. So within like the first six months of the first book, um, I think it got featured on Oprah's website and it's now been featured on Oprah's website 12 times. Wow. Then after that, it was like that too just felt like this freak combination of so many things of I've, I worked really, really, really hard to get to a point where someone would listen to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was probably like my childhood dream. Yes. It's like, please, will you just take me seriously? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Please, will you just hear me? Please, will you just trust that what I say is true and what I feel is true? And then like the that world validation. heard you. 
Oprah. The world heard me. Yes. Yeah. That's so amazing. Oprah's like, I hear you. Yes. Thank I you. got you. And we all know the Oprah effect. Yeah. 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 So wild. That's amazing. Wow. So with that book, I mean, and with all my books too, I'm like, I really want to speak to that little child and everybody who is like, please, will you hear me? Please, will you mm-hmm. take me seriously? Yes. I've done a lot of counseling for younger people. I'm the sort of person that a lot of people open up to. And I've heard a lot of, heard a lot of people's trauma stories. And I really think it all comes down to like, you know, your childhood shapes you so mm-hmm. deeply. Yes. So when I meet people now, even when I just meet people in my store or friends of friends, I think about like, I want to greet the child within them and let mm-hmm. that child know that they are safe with me so that we can grow together. Oh, Erin is like nodding her head. I know, She's I'm loving about to this. cry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a, I'm a yeah. therapist. And so when I'm like, that's the work that I love to do with people. And then you're like saying that yeah. and you're writing yes. books about that. And it's so beautiful because it's so the world needs that. So mm-hmm. thank you for doing what yeah. you do. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for doing what you do. Hmm. So what would you tell your younger self? Who? When I would tell my younger self is you are lovable. You mm-hmm. are actually, you are worth being loved. My little Maria. Oh, yeah. Little Ashley, my original name. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, in my family, my, my parents really tried to, I appreciate that my dad would say like, Maria, you're very driven. Maria, you're very, like you're talented and you're driven and you can do things while also at the same time him being like, I want to protect you. I want you to marry someone who's going to take care of you and you can be at home and you can be safe. Mm. I could see that conflict that he had in, in observing me. Mm-hmm. But then I also would hear him validating my sisters by saying like, you are so lovable. You are so friendly. You are so mm. approachable. Everybody loves you. Everybody wants to marry you. Everybody wants to date you. So I felt like this, mm. Like, okay, I can make art and draw and sing, but nobody wants that. Like, I need to be alone. And they're, my sisters are the ones who deserve to have love and deserve to be, yeah, that's mm-hmm. it. I, that's really like the mindset I was in as a kid is like, oh, I'm, people, people want me for what I can do, but they don't want me for me. Mm-hmm. So building a business and writing books and creating a bunch of things is a really funny way to act out your child of origin <laughs> <laughs> sure is sort through it totally. oh, yeah. always like maria you are ridiculous like you really <laughs> recreated your family of origin and you you are continually forcing yourself to work through it and that's beautiful yeah but it's intense and i was like yeah wow yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. totally Totally. And so you mentioned it really quickly. So real, like your name, you were born with the name Ashley. Is that right? So can you tell us quickly about like your name and how it changed? Yep. Um, And my mom thought Ashley was a very unique name for 1986. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, it was everybody thought the same thing. Yeah, everybody else's (laughs) name. Yeah. Um, In England, Ashley was a boy's name. So I always was like when I, I had to go into the hospital to get my tonsils out, they put me in the boys section and I, I looked kind of androgynous when I was younger. So that, that made me feel terrible. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved to the US, I remember taking a free tennis class and six out of 10 girls were named Ashley. Whoa, whoa. And I went home and was like, dad, I hate this name. <laughs> and how old were you at this point? I was eight. Oh, okay. Eight was a very pivotal year. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. So I just moved to the US. Um, I hated my name. My mom was pregnant and they were going to name my youngest sister, Isabella Maria. And I was like, dad, Mm. can I please try that name? (laughs) And my dad was like, you know, your mom was the one giving birth. So she was the one who got to choose your first name. So I don't really actually like the name Ashley very much. So if you want to change it, like you can give it a go, but you need to like talk to your mom about it and make sure that she feels okay with you changing your name. And then also you need to get everybody at school to call you Maria by the end of the quarter. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Done. Challenge? The driver picked up, right? Challenge accepted. Accepted. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was very lucky that when I entered fourth grade, I had like the one hippie free-spirited teacher at Catholic school. Uh. And I told her I want to change my name to Maria. And she announced it to the class and said, Ashley will be going by Maria this year. Please speak to her as Maria. That's so great. Yeah. And you know, Erin, if you're a therapist, the like the value of having one person believe in you and validate Mm. your voice makes absolutely everything. Absolutely. 
Yes. Makes a person feel capable is just, you just need one person yep. mm-hmm. to do that. And she did that for me. And I'm like forever grateful. Wow. So great. So is your name legally changed? So my name is very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never legally changed my name to Maria because when I had applied to colleges, um, I had already done like grants and scholarships mm-hmm. and written essays with the name Ashley. So I thought it's going to be too hard to try and change that. Mm-hmm. And then when I got married, I decided to, I have a very, very long name. My name is Maria Ashley Elizabeth Victoria Louise Goodrich Seal McDaniel. Wow. That does not fit on a social security card. <laughs> Correct. It's not. It also- How many names is that? That's eight, wow. and it does not fit on a marriage license, so I have an addendum, addendum. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. to my marriage certificate. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because my name's too long. Oh, my God. Wow. So I never legally changed. I added my husband's last name because I always thought I was going to keep Seal as my last name, but I also am very strong-willed. <laughs> I <laughs> mm-hmm. felt like, you know, Max, you are so patient with me and you are so willing to adapt to the things that I want. And I would like to take your last name as a way to show you I'm willing to adapt to what you want. Oh, that's beautiful. Be same page. So wow. for us, it's not a, it's the man's name for us. It's like, this is us sharing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's also kind of how our wedding went to was talking about being, uh, there's a, a poem called On Marriage by Khalil Gibran. Mm-hmm. It talks about being two pillars of the same temple. Mm. And that's how Max and I view ourselves in marriage is we are two, we are two individual pillars, mm-hmm. but we support the same thing. Mm. I am not absorbed by you. You are not absorbed by me. I don't view us as one. I view us as two people who continually every day choose each other next to each other and invest in the same thing. Mm. That's beautiful. And that well to me said. is like more romantic than like giving in to someone. Yes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Totally agree. Anyway, that is really wow. Yeah, so many good nuggets, and we. I'm just looking at the time here, and it looks like we are over our hour. So I we apologize for that. Let's see. So a couple things we want to make sure that everyone knows where they can find you. All over the internet, hopefully. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My website is mariaseal.com, and that. It holds both my retail site and other things that I do. My Instagram is fairly active. Yes. <laughs> At Maria Seal. I'm on Twitter, but I don't really, I don't have time for Twitter. So it's mostly Instagram <laughs> and mm-hmm. my website, Pinterest. I'm also at Maria Seal. Mm-hmm. And my books are all over the place. And they're called 52 List Project, 52 List for Happiness, 52 List for Calm. 52 is for togetherness. And then I have a home decor book called Make Yourself at Home, which is about not only investing in your home, but in yourself. So So amazing. And the storefront, right? The storefront is at 1012? Yep. 1012, First Avenue, downtown Seattle. Awesome. And it's beautiful. The pictures of the outside. Next time I'm in Seattle, I'm, I'm going. Heck yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we just want to thank you so much. And before we sign off, we do have (laughs) Anna's going to ask you. We have kind of a silly question. Just to end things on a light note, okay? We're trying out the questions. We're trying this out. <laughs> you can see how you like this one. <laughs> okay, Maria, would you rather be a centaur or a mermaid? And I have to say, when I when we were trying to figure Wait, out... Wait, no, let, let, let's let her answer. Well, Amy said... It's no question. <laughs> so I want to know what you have to say. Oh, so you guys have a guess of what you think I'm going to say? Well, Amy guessed what she, she thinks that every, what everyone should she say. She thinks everyone's yeah. going to say the same thing. <laughs> I didn't I mean to what... be such a know-it-all in this one. Okay? <laughs> I don't even know what a centaur is, but, so there we go. Yeah. <laughs> so I was going to say 100% a centaur. <gasps> That's, oh, that's, ex- a mermaid. that's exactly oh, what I said. That's what Amy yeah. said. Okay, apparently it's a no-brainer. Yes. Okay, what's your reasoning? Centaur is so badass. Totally. <laughs> I'm, a Harry po- I'm a Harry Potter nerd. I do have a tattoo of Harry Potter because that is the book that made me feel like, oh, there's a kid who is on their own and they have struggles and challenges, but they're going to freaking do it anyway. They're going to yes. keep going. They're going to push through. 
Um, so centaur for, to me sounds like, oh, this majestic creature yeah. who is out on its own. It also has community. It is complex. It is can run really fast. That's true. Is super strong. Yes. So strong. So cool. So smart. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Just like you. Listen, yes. we are so grateful for so grateful so grateful for you coming on our show and taking your time and sharing all yeah, of your you so all much. of your insights and your depth and thank thanks for being you. with us and yeah. also for letting me be scattered as i tell the weird stories of my life oh it's amazing welcome to our world yeah, yeah. <laughs> amy has to keep us on track too so don't worry <laughs> i do my best but yeah. <laughs> also for all of us our goal in this podcast is really to help people feel less alone and find ways to connect and have authentic connection. And yeah. I think like the tools that you have given our world with connecting to self and really like connecting to home and all of that, it's just, it's so valuable. So thank you for the work that you're doing and we'll be in touch. Yeah. Thank you so much. That thank is the you. kindest thing to say. And that's the sort of compliment that makes me feel so grateful to be alive. Aww. Really, 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 really appreciate it. Yeah. We're so thankful for you. Yep. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your day. Right. We'll talk Have soon. Have a wonderful day. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Bye. Bye, bye. Bye. Okay. So we talk about connection. That's what our deal is here. So we have a six-step roadmap for instant connection. You can get that at connectionroadmap.com. It will give you the hookup on what to do to get instantly connected with people in this world. Thanks for listening. You can find more about this episode and a way to connect to the community at lessalonepodcast.com. And if you like us, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to leave a review. It helps other people find us and could be just what they need.